Loose Human, the podcast where I talk about whatever I want. And today that means the themes and main comparisons that you could make when writing an essay about Arthur Miller's The Crucible and Rosalie Ham's The Dressmaker. I, for one, am not a fan of the comparative essay, probably because I think The Dressmaker is the worst book ever written. But in the quest for a near-perfect ATAR, we have to write about it anyway. Luckily, the comparative includes two texts, meaning you can have a shaky knowledge of each and still bang out a whole essay. For that reason, I'm not going to bother with the characters like I did for Much Ado About Nothing, because I will be so honest right now, you don't need to know who they are. Plus, the dressmaker introduces a new character every second word, so they're not worth all like keeping track of. This episode, I'm going to just go through the key themes and main comparisons that you could make in an essay, and then at the end I'll talk about my own like essay writing strategy. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts by scrolling to the bottom of the page where you can give a star rating and a reason for that rating if you want me to keep making them. Anyway, on to the episode. I've got four key themes to discuss today and they are isolated communities, appearance versus reality, outcasts and reputation and integrity. For each theme, I'm going to mention how you can talk about Proctor and Tilly because they are without fail my final paragraph for every single essay and you'd be really just missing out on easy marks if you don't do that same thing. So yeah, every theme we're going to be talking about Proctor and Tilly because to me they're the most important paragraph because they're going to be in an essay regardless of what the topic is. So what I consider the most important theme to discuss is the effects of living in isolated or parochial communities, because you can add it to pretty much any essay topic. Regardless of if the essay is about jealousy or the rule of law or literally anything, you can always blame the bad things that happen in these towns on the fact that they are so isolated and narrow-minded. So let's go through some of the ways in which parochialism affects the development of a community. Firstly, both the towns of Dungatar and Salem are so isolated that they don't have any nearby places to compare themselves to, leaving the characters unable to moderate their decisions or even recognise whether or not the things they are doing are like socially appropriate. With no town to compare themselves to, the people of Salem uh, in particular devolve into a chaotic mess of paranoia and quote, general revenge, unquote, without even realising that their behaviour is, like I said, inappropriate. Mary Warren's decline exemplifies the dangers of living within a social vacuum like Salem, as she begins the play as like a reasonable character who understands her actions and their consequences, noting that, quote, witchery is a hanging error, like they'd done in Boston two years ago, unquote. So this really demonstrates that she she's aware of acceptable behaviour and the processes by which towns usually conduct justice. As the play progresses and Salem closes in on itself, Mary is slowly drawn into the eponymous melting pot, but still refuses to succumb to the paranoia wreaking havoc on the town, admitting that Abigail's story, quote, were a pretense, unquote. Nonetheless, Miller illustrates the power of isolation, as Mary has no choice but to give in to Abigail's will after witnessing her wild performance in the courtroom, promising to, quote, hurt her no more, unquote. Mary's abandonment of the Proctors is the result of social pressure from powerful voices and lack of other options due to Salem's isolation. Similarly, Trudy in The Dressmaker is drawn into the hysterical nature of of Dungatar, but unlike Mary Warren, she willingly submits herself to it in the name of social advancement. Gertrude begins the text as a quote, unbeautiful, unquote, yet vain young woman, already an eager participant in Dungatar's cycle of betrayal and gossip. 
With a family that forms a core function in the community, the owners of the general store, it is impossible for her to even begin the novel with like a perfect sense of morality because she's already started off the story as like fully invested in the values of Dungata because her family is already so important in the town. So they have a vested interest in continuing to obey the twisted social values that already exist. So we've already got Tilly starting off on a little bit of a wrong foot when it comes to morals, but as the narrative continues, she falls even deeper into the rabbit hole of deception and power struggles that seem entirely normal in such an isolated town as Nangata. Of particular interest is the change in language Ham uses regarding Tilly by the end of the text, noting how she, quote, leans down, unquote, over Elsbeth, and, quote, circles, unquote, the cast of Macbeth. So the use of this word circles has like connotations of a bird of prey and this places Trudy in the position of a ruthless predator. Even by this stage, she sees nothing inappropriate about her behaviour, ironically peeking in her madness through an act of resolve, seemingly doubling down in her belief that she is correct as she screams, quote, this is my bus, unquote, as her cast and crew drive away. Unlike Mary Warren, Trudy's descent into hysteria does not end in her acceptance like in the same way that Mary Warren is accepted back into the community, but um, rather serves as a cautionary tale of what happens when one leans into the rotten, unspoken values of a community, like gossip, social climbing, and power, with too much enthusiasm. So, as you can see, both texts really criticise the nature of parochial towns for creating these social vacuums whereby people are unable to see their actions objectively and lose sight of reason. Furthermore, the closed-minded attitudes of these societies mean that characters in power can weaponize their prejudice to hurt other people. The deaths that occur in each text symbolize the damaging consequences of parochialism. In The Crucible, Giles Corey's decision to submit himself to pressing, which is when they put like big stones on your chest until you die, um, rather than quote confess unquote his alleged sins, are demonstrative of the dire situation Miller believes America to be facing. The quote, combine, uh, the quote, combine of state and religious power whose function was to prevent any kind of disunity, unquote, much like McCarthy's combination of political ideology and morality in his own witch hunts that were occurring in real life in the 1950s, is shown to render society fearful and paranoid. The people of Salem, quote, mind each other's business, unquote, in an effort to remain faithful to their, their grand narrative, their overall social principles and guarantee their path to heaven, which causes them to turn on each other. And this basically suggests that it is the rigidity of ideology which is the true destructive force of the community, rather than outside enemies. So, especially in Salem, all of the townspeople are worried about, like, outside forces coming in, like, the witches and the devil and Native Americans and, like, the forest and, you know, whatever, spirits, whatever. But, um, it's very clear that they've kind of, they're manufacturing these external enemies while they themselves are creating disunity. To Miller, both Salem and 1950s America suffer, suffer from a deep internal malaise, not the outsiders, be they witches or communists, on whom they blame their internal problems. Giles Corey's, Giles Corey's, Giles Corey's cries for, okay, Giles Corey's cries for, quote, more weight, unquote, are a tragic attempt at avoiding the dissolution of his farm, a cruel law which exists as an effort to draw out the confession which the court wishes to hear. 
With Giles's death and the refusal of Rebecca Nurse to confess in the future, the last vestiges of temperance and morality die in Salem also, instead replaced by Danforth's new order of hysteria and insistence that there are only two options, quote, confession or hanging, unquote, which is similar to the new order of anti-communism sweeping the 1950s United States. Miller uses Giles' death as a result of the impact of the witch hunts on Salem as a whole to demonstrate the ushering in of a new age in both Salem and the US at large, one of instability and closed-mindedness and isolation. Contrarily, the dressmaker critiques the way that parochialism is a static mindset. So we've got in Salem, it's very clear that there's a progression happening. There was an old society, an old Salem and old values that are now being swept aside by the new court Uh, represented by Danforth, and now we're moving forward into an even worse future, a more isolated future, a more parochial future. So on the other hand, in The Dressmaker, Rosalie Hamm basically represents Salem as a society that does not change. It's never changed, it's always been the same. And that's um, the kind of like stagnation that can occur in isolated towns when there's nothing to really catch up to, there's no demonstrations of progression around them, so they believe they can just exist in the same way forever. Unlike Salem's inability to, uh, due to updated social norms, Ham suggests that Dungatar has always been a dangerously backward society, that the people have always been punished for the same things, and that, quote, nothing ever really changes, unquote. What communicates this most clearly is Tilly's return after 20 years, and the comparison of flashbacks to the present day, which demonstrate that the town has really not changed in all this time. Now, I don't know about you, but when I finally got around to reading The Dressmaker, um, I still haven't even finished it. I've got like 100 pages. Anyway, um, but like when I was reading it, uh, maybe it's because I wasn't entirely paying attention, but I couldn't tell the difference between the flashbacks and the, the actual like modern day text. So that kind of really shows that between like the, the time that Tilly was gone, nothing happened in, in that time. Nothing changed. The community's always been the same way. The women in the town continue to, quote, narrow their eyes up the hill, unquote, demonstrating their unyielding distaste for Tilly, and Mr. Almanac portrays a cruelty that could only go unchecked in a parochial society that does not know any better, refusing medication to Molly on the grounds that, quote, God is responsible for everything, unquote. Molly's death thus occurs in a painful and tragic manner due to the close-minded and cruel attitudes bred in the parochial town of Dungata, which, unlike the Crucible, are unchanging and characteristic of the town. So therefore, both Ham and Miller are talking about how isolated towns breed these really minor, narrow-minded attitudes, which lead to the suffering of other people. Now, in order to overcome the struggles of isolated life, both texts suggest that a person must prioritize their own values, their own morals, over that of their society in order to like self-actualize. And you're going to hear these words a lot, the words in order to overcome the struggles of X, because pretty much every single third paragraph that I do in a comparative is always going to be about that. It's always going to be two paragraphs talking about the issue represented in the topic, and then a third paragraph saying in order to overcome this issue, um, you need to prioritize your own morals and self-actualize because it fits with every single essay topic. In The Crucible, Miller represents John Proctor as an agent of his own destiny, the seizing of which enables him to go to death with his, quote, goodness, unquote, intact. 
Act 3 of the play portrays Proctor's internal struggle between adhering to the values presented to him by the court, where he must, quote, bound by heaven, unquote, confess sins he knows are, quote, pretense, unquote, or else be sent to his death, or his own personal values, whereby he truthfully goes to the scaffold, knowing that he is pure of heart. And in his conversation with his wife, Elizabeth, Proctor grapples with whether or not he is a good person, having, quote, known, unquote, Abigail. Entirely at the mercy of his wife, he pleads with her, quote, what would you have me do, unquote, which demonstrates his complete lack of direction, not only in a patriarchal, but a puritanical society. This line, the words, you know, um, what would you have me do? He's asking for advice from his wife. This is a deviation from traditional gender roles where the man was the leader of the relationship, placing Proctor in a position of immense vulnerability. Miller likens the expectations of the court to witchcraft, as Proctor claims to have, quote, given it his soul, unquote, which brings up imagery of, like, signing the devil's book, which illustrates that Proctor recognises that it would be an immoral decision to allow his confession to reach public ears. Hence, he, quote, tears the paper and crumples it, unquote, condemning himself to the scaffold, but preferring this fate in the knowledge that, quote, whatever he will do, it is a good man that does it, unquote. Miller's portrayal of Proctor as a renegade unwilling to bend to the whims of the court is also a reflection of his own behaviour, as in Arthur Miller's behaviour, during the 1950s McCarthyite witch hunts, where he was interrogated by HUAC, the House and American Activities Committee, is it a committee or commission? Whatever it is, and refused to accuse others of being communists. Hence, Proctor's behaviour in the Crucible reflects the morality of his own actions, but they but he can also be interpreted as more broad advice to follow one's inner values above all. Similarly, the dressmaker presents a final act of defiance in a symbolic endorsement of personal values over corrupted societal values. Tilly's decision to burn the town of Dungatar stems not only from a frustration at her own treatment and that of those she loves, especially Ted McSwiney and Molly, but from a knowledge that the malaise which affects the, quote, sour people of Dungatar, unquote, is essentially incurable. Even Sergeant Farrett, or, quote, Banquo, unquote, as he is known in the final section of the book, symbolising his alliance with the rest of the townspeople who mistreated Tilly and are participating in the production of Macbeth, is punished. Farrett's first thought when he sees the fire is of, quote, his frocks, unquote, demonstrating that when living in such an isolated town, it is impossible to abstain from their rotten values, as materialism is shown to be his main priority. Only Bura Haradine's house is left standing, which is an act of poetic justice by Tilly in an effort to make the town unite, despite being, quote, a motley bunch, unquote. It is Tilly's mother's death which, quote, catalyzes, unquote, her willingness to burn Dungatai and put aside any previous desire for acceptance. Unlike Proctor, Tilly's final act after losing faith in her town serves to punish them rather than being a moralistic example. Hence, both Ham and Miller endorse prioritisation of individual values in order to overcome the toxic cultures that are prevalent in isolated towns. So that's it for the first theme. It's pretty simple. It's just like isolated towns make people uh, make people unable to recognise that their behaviour is bad. It means that they are prejudiced and there's no one to stop them. And then in order to overcome it, you need to, to self-actualise and whatever. So the second theme is appearance versus reality. Now, this is obviously a classic theme in English, and it certainly comes into play when we're writing our comparative pieces. Let's just jump straight into it. Both texts expose how when individuals in small communities are threatened, they construct facades or obscure the truth in order to remain safe. 
In The Crucible, Abigail Williams is a character bent on survival, not only following her participation in a supposed witching, but due to her status as an orphan and a woman in a puritanical town. She quickly realises that she can harness the power of paranoia and group fear and use it to her advantage in Act 1, assuming her position of power when she instructs the other girls, quote, Now look you, all of you, we danced and Tichuba conjured Ruth, Put Ruth Putnam's dead sisters and that is all, unquote going on to, th to threaten a, quote, pointy reckoning, unquote, should they disobey her words. This facade is shown to be a response to the greater facade of Salem as a whole, as she reveals her true self to John Proctor later in Act 1, claiming he taught her, quote, what a pretense Salem is, unquote. Hence, she wields the dual powers of paranoia and fear, mingling her, quote, ecstatic cries, unquote, with Betty's as they accuse various women of being with the devil. Later in the play, when Abigail's position is, an important, is as an important giver of evidence, and by extension her entire reputation, is threatened by Mary Warren's assertions that her behaviour, quote, were pretense, unquote, Abigail once again draws on her powerful facade, strengthened by the cooperation of the other girls who were, quote, all transfixed, unquote, not only by Mary Warren's supposed witching, but by Abigail's social power over them. Through Abigail's desperate battle for survival, Miller demonstrates the lengths to which people will go to protect themselves. Similarly, Sergeant Horatio Farrett hides his love of fashion for fear of persecution from the discriminative people of Dungatar. In a town where any kind of difference is frowned upon, including Mad Molly's mental struggles, Barney McSwiney's disability, and the lesbian relationship between... Um... Those two ladies... Farrett, quote, wears his own clothes only inside the house, unquote. Unlike Abigail, he does not parade his deviation from social norms around in public, using collective fear to quash voices of opposition, but instead quietly enjoys his frocks by keeping them for his eyes only. Furthermore, rather than threatening, quote, pointy reckonings, unquote, in order to gain support, Farrett merely associates with those he, will know, he knows will already accept him, uh, like Tilly, demonstrating that his facade operates more like an obstruction and omission of truth, rather than a willful public lie. Hence, both Ham and Miller are demonstrating to us that in order to maintain a sense of safety in towns which threaten them, individuals must lie in some way. Secondly, Ham and Miller demonstrate that communities are destabilised when these deceptive appearances are swept aside. Content to live in a false reality, Danforth in particular forcefully pushes his ideology of Christi Christian fundamentalism onto the townspeople of Salem in an effort to protect his, his own crumbling identity. As the frontrunner of a court which, quote, melts all concealment, unquote, Danforth's reputation is of the utmost importance to his work, for it is his own personal judgment which determines the validity of evidence, and indeed the fate of people's lives. Therefore, when he claims to, quote, have seen marvels in this court, unquote, he not only professes his faith in Abigail, but gives the audience insight into his true motivations. The constant use of personal pronouns in Danforth's speech demonstrates that his egocentricity causes him to place the fate of others entirely into his own hands. His further assertion that witchcraft is, quote, an invisible crime, unquote, peels back another layer of his insecurity as his authority weakens, suggesting that if witchcraft were an invisible crime, then even he would, no would not be able to see it. When it comes to the handling of human life, Danforth remains solely concerned about his reputation, arguing that, quote, 12 are already execu executed, postponement now speaks of floundering on my part, unquote, when begged to save Proctor's life, once again demonstrating the coddling of his own ego. 
Danforth's contradictions served to inadvertently expose his essential weakness, resulting in outbursts from others like Hale, who says, quote, is every defense an attack upon the court, unquote, a logical argument which is only really met with opposition, resulting in his eventual quitting of the court. Hale's leaving of the court symbolizes the secession of a voice of reason, a signal that Salem has truly destabilized. Similarly, when Trudy's nature comes to light in The Dressmaker, Dungatar's downfall is well and truly underway. Trudy's decline is initially obscured by her, quote, shapely figure, unquote, as outlined by Tilly's dressmaking and her dedication to the town production of Macbeth, so that's her appearance. However, as the play comes to, tru uh, comes to fruition, Trudy's facade of wife, mother, and school director rots away to reveal a power-hungry monster, much like the Hayden Macbeth much like the Lady Macbeth she casts herself as. Even by this stage, she sees nothing inappropriate about her behaviour, ironically peeking in her madness through an act of resolve, seemingly, seemingly doubling down in her belief that she is correct as she screams, quote, I'm Lady Macbeth, I am, unquote, as her cast and crew drive away, leaving Mona to perform her inappropriate, sexualised version of the character, truly symbolising Dungatar's instability. Danforth and Trudy are both characters whose decline in reason destabilizes their town, but Ham demonstrates how such a level of internal decay results in tangible punishment, whilst Miller points out the unfortunate nature of Salem in allowing Danforth to continue to lord his morality over the people. Once again, in order to overcome the nature of societies destroyed by deception, both Ham and Miller suggest that one must look within themselves and prioritise their own values in order to be free. John Proctor's arc as a hero is doomed by his hamasha of concealing his shame for having, quote, known, unquote, Abigail Williams. Tortured by the deception that he wrapped around himself and what it meant for his conscience, compounded by Danforth's insistence that he, quote, confess, unquote, to crimes he did not commit, Proctor is forced to punish himself in order to be a, quote, good man, unquote. The final act of the play portrays Proctor's internal struggle between adhering to the values of the court, where, he's, where he is, quote, bound by heaven, unquote, to make confessions he knows are lies, or his own personal values, whereby he goes to the scaffold knowing himself to be true of heart. In order to overcome the lies he has told and truly believe that, quote, whatever he does, it is a good man does it, he, quote, tears the paper and crumples it, unquote, condemning himself to death. Miller's portrayal of Proctor is also, again, a reflection of his own behaviour during the 1950s McCarthy Witch Hunts, where he was interrogated by Hewitt, blah, 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 blah. The Dressmaker also presents a final act of defiance against a town rendered immobile by lies and deceit. With him suggesting that in this situation, traditional morals are unimportant and such a town deserves punishment above all else. Tilly's decision to burn the town stems from a knowledge that the malaise which affects the, quote, sour people of Dungata, unquote, is incurable. Even Sergeant Farrett, or Banquo, as he is known, uh, in the final section of the book, symbolising his alliance with the rest of the people, is punished. Farrett's first thought is of, quote, his frocks, unquote, which demonstrates once again that living in an isolated town renders him unable to remain detached from their corrupt and rotten internal values, and therefore materialism is his main priority. Hence, unlike Proctor, Tilly's final act after losing faith in her town serves to punish them, rather holding herself up as a moral example. Both Miller and Ham endorse the prioritisation of individual values in order to overcome the toxic cultures prevalent in isolated towns. You see what I'm saying? You can blame everything on the fact that it's an isolated town. Okay, on to the third theme. This is going to be a short episode, isn't it? 
Okay, on to the third theme, outcasts. Both the Crucible and the Dressmaker are, as we know, pretty big on outcasts, which again is another thing we can blame on how narrow-minded their settings are. Both texts suggest that individuals who feel threatened are very quick to blame and outcast others in order to avoid being outcasted themselves. In The Crucible, Abigail is exposed as a liar aiming to quote, dance on the grave, unquote, of her adult lover's wife, which, when added to suspicions of her involvement in witchcraft, places her in a precarious position in the puritanical theocracy of Salem. When she senses danger, her seemingly confident tone when she dictates, quote, we danced and that is all, unquote, to the other girls, could easily be interpreted as a facade of bravado to shield from her true fears that she would face her own, quote, pointy reckoning, unquote. Hence, when she is suspected of witchcraft, she immediately blurts, quote, Tichuba, she spoke Barbados, unquote, directing the attention to perhaps the only person less enfranchised in Salem than her, a black slave woman. Abigail positions herself as a champion of good, claiming that, quote, she refused, unquote, to indulge Tichuba's witchery, further cementing the other woman's place as the source of trouble. Even when Tichuba tries to defend herself, Abigail sternly tells her, quote, don't lie, unquote, and continues with her own falsehoods, demonstrating that when threatened, she immediately turns upon someone with less power. Evan Pettyman, from The Dressmaker, also lashes out at those around him in order to protect himself, but unlike Abigail, this is a result of power that he already wields in his community. When his illegitimate daughter, Tilly Dunnage, kills his son, Stuart, Evan feels threatened that his infidelity may come to light because he has cheated on his wife to, uh, to conceive Tilly and it's a secret. Unlike Abigail, Evan is the most empowered person in his community and he uses this to scapegoat his own daughter as he, quote, realized fully what it all meant, unquote, if the knowledge that Tilly was, quote, his daughter, unquote, came to light and the damage it would have on his reputation. Like Tichuba, Tilly is cast out from her community in order to protect the reputation of someone she did not harm. Hence, both Miller and Hammed are demonstrating that regardless of their level of power in society, as we can see, Abigail is very disempowered, she's very low on the rungs of society, while, um, on the other hand, Evan is the most empowered person in his society. Threatened individuals always seek to blame someone with less than them. Secondly, Ham and Miller demonstrate that the outcasts who are at the lowest rungs of society are doomed to mistreatment, neglect, and lonely deaths. In The Crucible, Miller demonstrates how, once cast out, Tichuba and Sarah Good are never re-empowered, but rather give in and embody the tarnished reputations that they have been given. Tichuba freely discusses that which she had vehemently denied not two acts earlier, that she will be, quote, going to Barbados as soon as, the as soon as the devil gets here with the feathers and the wings, unquote, including a detailed description of a devil that she has never seen. Sarah Good also claims that she and Tichuba will make, quote, grand transformations, unquote, into, quote, a pair of bluebirds, unquote, similarly harnessing the common image of a witch and transposing itself onto herself and Tichuba. When punished for a crime they did not even commit, Sarah and Tichuba lose faith in their society to the point where they just simply embody that which they were accused of being. Mad Molly also earns her nickname in The Dressmaker, remaining secluded in her hilltop house, wasting away. One of the first descriptions of Molly is with, quote, green gums and lunatic eyes, unquote, demonstrating that not only does she embody her nickname in a defined act of escapism like Sarah and Tichuba, but she has been neglected to the extent where her charges ring true. 
Unlike the outcast from the Crucible, Molly has the assistance of her daughter, but Ham demonstrates the virulent nature of reputation, as both mother and daughter are disrespected by their communities equally. So just by being associated with each other, they kind of compound their level of outcast. When Molly sustains an injury from a fall and is on her deathbed, Tilly attempts to buy some pain medication but is refused by Mr. Almanac, who claims that, quote, God, unquote, is responsible for Molly now, implying that she deserves her circumstances. Once cast out, Molly never finds a way back into the good graces of the, quote, sour people of Dungata, unquote, but is condemned to die slowly and painfully, just as Sarah and Tichuba are fated to the noose. Hence, Ham and Miller argue that parochial societies are unforgiving and will punish outcasts to the extreme. Finally, and ultimately, both authors suggest that once a community has truly cast a person out, they must prioritise their own values in order to self-actualise. Does it sound familiar? You see how it's, it's just coming back again? In The Crucible, Miller presents John Proctor as an agent of his own destiny, the seizing of which enables him to go to his death with his goodness intact, goodness is a quote, um, despite casting himself out of the community. So John Proctor casts himself out of his own community because as we can see by the end of the play, he has the opportunity to bring himself back. If he were to just confess, he could go on his merry way, but he makes, makes the explicit decision to become an outcast. Confessing sins that he knows are, quote, pretense, unquote, is unacceptable to Proctor, who would rather remain true to himself than bend to the whims of a cruel court. Miller likens the expectations of the court to witchcraft, as Proctor claims to have, quote, given it his soul, unquote, hearkening to the imagery of signing the devil's book, which illustrates plainly that Proctor recognises that Salem has become a place he no longer wants any part in. Hence, when he tears the paper and crumples it, that's a quote, um, the paper, which, by the way, is his confession, uh, he makes himself into an outcast. He actively transforms himself into an outcast and condemns himself to a painful death. But he prefers this fate in the knowledge that, quote, whatever he will do, it is a good man does it, unquote. Miller's defiant portrayal of Proctor is also a reflection of his own personal behaviour during the 1950s McCarthyite witch hunts, where he was interrogated by Huack and refused to accuse others of being communists. Which, I've repeated that like multiple times now, but I, like, I really recommend including some kind of historical context for The Crucible because it's a fun fact, examiners enjoy that kind of thing. And also, um, it kind of makes more sense now why Proctor is just like such a goody two-shoes. It's because he's a self-insert. It's because this is basically fan fiction and, and Arthur Miller is YN. Tilly's final defiant act stems from a similar anger at her town, but is expressed as not, not as self-punishment, but revenge. So Proctor really um, inflicts his final act on himself. He goes inwards, whereas Tilly goes outwards. And that's like a key contrast that you can make. Unlike Proctor, Tilly believes that the malaise which affects Salem, uh, Salem, the malaise which affects Dungatai is incurable and rejects its core values, rather than berating herself for straying from them. So that's another thing that we see which is different. Proctor kind of tells himself off for, for, for straying from the core values of Salem, the main one of which is adultery, he cheats on his wife. Whereas Tilly says to herself, those values were shit to begin with, and so it's not her fault for straying from them. Instead, the right thing to do is to burn down the town, because there were never good values in the first place. So once the fire has been set, only Elsbeth's house has been left standing, an act of poetic justice by Tilly in an effort to make the town unite, despite being a quote, motley bunch, unquote. 
And as we already discussed earlier, it's her mother Molly's death which really makes her realise that Dungata has never been a good place and it never will be a good place and so the only thing to do now is to burn it down and move on. So again, unlike Proctor, her final act after losing faith in the town serves to punish them rather than being a moralistic example. Hence, once again, both Hem and Miller endorse this prioritisation of individual values to overcome like being an outcast. Finally, the last thing we're going to discuss today is that of reputation and integrity, and that was, I'm sure you remember, one of the featured SAC topics this year. And that's the one that I wrote on. So, first of all, we have uh, a point, a comparison that you can make, is that both texts demonstrate that reputation is a core facet of parochial life. Notice again how I can bring in that idea that it's a parochial town, and I can blame all of the problems of the town on that. And people will go to great lengths to protect themselves and to protect their reputations. So in the Crucible, once again, this is such a great example to use. Suspicions of Abigail's involvement in witchcraft place her reputation and her life in danger in Salem. And also, it's very clear that Abigail's reputation has come into question before, as she continually promises Paris that, quote, there be no blush about her name, unquote, or blames others for, quote, soiling, unquote, her name. When she senses danger once again, she takes control of those around her, dictating, quote, we danced and that is all, unquote, to the other girls, in a confident tone which could easily be interpreted as a bravado to shield from her true fears that she would face her own, quote, pointy reckoning, unquote. And as we discussed earlier, she lashes out and she blames Tichuba, who has even less power than she does. And of course, the comparison that I would always use for this is that of Evan Pettyman, who also lashes out around, uh, at those around him to protect his reputation, but he wields power that he already previously had in his community. So again, when writing this type of essay, I understand that it's a comparative essay, but it's also important to just include some ways in which they were different, because something tells me that Arthur Miller and Rosalingham didn't get together and say, let's write some books that are easily comparable. So yeah, the second point that I would discuss is how both the Crucible and the Dressmaker demonstrate that if one's reputation is slipping, it is possible to, to reclaim it, but for the price of one's entire personal integrity, one's entire self-respect. In the Crucible, Mary Warren understands that if one's reputation is marred by accusations of witchcraft, the consequences are, quote, a hanging, unquote. Initially, Mary refuses to be drawn into the eponymous melting pot, truthfully admitting that Abigail's story, quote, were a pretense, unquote, but Abigail's desperation to maintain her own reputation prevails, and after witnessing uh, Abigail's wild performance in the courtroom where all the girls are, like, whipping their hair back and forth, if you've seen the, the old Vic performance of it on digital theatre, it's a great one, you should check it out, um, that prevails. And so Abigail uses a group fear and it proves far too effective for Mary to withstand, forcing her to prioritise Abigail's reputation over both the truth and Mary Warren's self-respect, promising to, quote, hurt her no more, unquote, in order to save her own. Perhaps a reference to the McCarthyite paranoia running rife at this time in the play, where Miller watched countless individuals abandon their integrity in order to prove themselves true Americans. Sergeant Farrett is similarly willing to abandon his integrity in order to save his slipping reputation. Harboring a secret, his love of women's clothing, and perhaps his own homosexuality from the, from the discriminative people of Dungata is necessary, and hence he, quote, wears his own clothes only inside the house, unquote, to protect himself from judgment. Nonetheless, in a town so gripped by gossip, 
Rumours begin to circulate and people begin to quote, think he's a queer, unquote, after spending so much time with Tilly. Despite claiming to quote, not care, unquote, he gives in to the toxic culture of Dungatar once more through his participation in the town production of Macbeth. He commits himself to the town to such a degree that Ham begins addressing him as Banquo, rather than his real name. Although Farrett does not conduct a performance to gain support in the same way that Abigail does, his actions demonstrate where his loyalties lie. So we can see that Farrett, his reputation as being the you know moralistic town cop, of being a straight man, of being respectable, that was slipping. People started to think that he was gay. People started to gossip about him. So as his reputation was slipping, his solution was to completely abandon his integrity and self-respect and simply just dive right back into the town values in an effort for acceptance. Finally, in order to overcome the corrupt values of their communities, both texts argue that people must let go of their reputations and focus on their true values. In the Crucible, John Proctor's seizing of his own destiny allows him to go to his death with his, with quote, his goodness intact, despite ruining his reputation. Now, I somewhat apologize for the amount of repetition that's going on this episode, but um, I find that when teachers repeat certain quotes in class, I remember them better. So I hope that's what's happening with you. And maybe it only sounds incredibly boring to me because I've written all of this and I've read it multiple times. But um, hopefully it's just helping to cement all of this knowledge in your brain. Confessing sins that Proctor knows are, quote, pretense, unquote, goes against his personal values. And he would rather keep his integrity than uh, and sacrifice his reputation, basically. Miller likens the expectations of the court to witchcraft once again, as Proctor claims to have, quote, given it his soul, unquote, evoking imagery of signing the devil's book. Which, again, what a great observation to make, because, I mean... It's so incredibly ironic. The court, which is meant to be the body that's protecting against witchcraft, is being likened to witchcraft. Like, what a burn from Miller there. When Proctor, quote, tears the paper and crumples it, unquote, he outcasts himself from society and condemns himself to death. But he prefers this in the knowledge that, quote, whatever he will do, it is a good man does it, unquote. Importantly, Proctor's moment of realisation means he overcomes his hamasha, or his, uh, his fatal flaw, of hiding his shame for having been unfaithful to his wife, as is customary in a tragedy. And we've got to remember, The Crucible is a tragic play. Um, but, this, but as is customary in a tragedy, this comes too late for his death to be avoided. And also that word hamasha, let me spell it for you, because it is the ancient Greek word, and I'm pretty sure a professor might just like orgasm if they read it. H-A-M-A-R-T-I-A, use it in your essay. Tilly's final defiant act stems from a similar loss of respect for her community, but is, res- uh, but is expressed as revenge, not as self-punishment, as opposed to Proctor. So, unlike Proctor, she believes that the disease which affects Dungatar, the social disease, has always existed, whereas Proctor personally has watched Salem devolve. So, rather than punishing herself, Tilly, quote, scorches, unquote, the town. Only Elsbeth's house is left standing after the fire, again an act of poetic justice trying to unite the town, although I'm pretty sure we can all guess how well that goes. Tilly understands that the quote, sour people of Dungatar, unquote, will never accept her, and that the community is haunted by spectres of the past and will remain stagnated forever, as is characteristic of gothic settings. And uh, the Crucible, uh, not the Crucible, well I mean the Crucible is somewhat gothic, but um, 
the dressmaker and Dungata, that is an Australian Gothic novel, kind of like Picnic and Hanging Rock, although I doubt anyone would read that for fun. Unlike Proctor, after losing faith in her town, Tilly punishes them rather than providing a moralistic example. Ultimately, it is clear that neither writer believes it is possible to maintain both reputation and personal integrity in their toxic settings, but rather one must be tragically prioritised above the other. Okay, so that's it for the themes this episode. As you can see, when it comes to the comparative, it's way less about overarching themes like love and deception, and more about comparing certain characters and somehow linking those, compar those comparisons to the topic. Overall, I'd just say make sure you don't write too much because that's something I really struggle with. I feel like I have to analyze both texts fully, but the, the plus in the comparative is that you really only need to know half as much about each one. And uh, what else? I'd say mention genre, that's very important. And don't forget to leave this podcast a review on Apple Podcasts. So yeah, that's it for this episode. Good luck with your studies. Until next time, this has been Human.